What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Marshall podcast. We have a kind. Of, we're going to talk about a few different things in today's uh, episode. Um, but you know, just just this morning, I had I had a. A, a chat. Now it sounds like, uh, you know, I had a chat with a member of Congress, like it's something I do every day. It's something I almost never do. But a member of Congress uh, reached out to me and said, you know, you want to uh, meet for coffee? Uh, I'm not going to say who it is, only because it's not. It wasn't that kind of thing, you know, just wasn't an interview or something like that. But it, but it was an interesting conversation. I was going to kind of uh, reference a few um, things from that, and you know, one thing we talked about. Everybody says now that globalization is over, that that's done. And I think that is right. In as much as everything is being, you know, there's a huge, we just, you know, Congress just passed this chips bill, which is basically getting the US back, you know, back into the chips semiconductor business, um, bringing that home, both for national security reasons. You know, if we, if we do think that China is our big national competitor, whether, you know, hopefully that doesn't become a directly military conflict, but, you know, our kind of rival in, in the world order, then uh, given that, that chips are so central to everything in technology and the economy in, in, in the present world, it doesn't really work to have all of them made either in China or, you know, right across the Taiwan Strait where China could, you know, China could quickly make Taiwan part of China. But then there's also the domestic manufacturing and the economy and high paying jobs and all this kind of stuff. And uh, there's a similar conversation about all the things tied to climate technology and batteries and so on and so forth. Uh, and, you know, in some sense, uh, Trump's election was a foreshadowing of this in as much as that was you know, that played on the effects of deindustrialization. Whether it's really about economics or not is another question, but it, but it, but it plays on that. And certainly that was part of, uh, you know, Trump's public presentation. One of the other things that happened uh, is, you know, the pandemic showed I, I, in this conversation, I, I, I brought up there was a very it was it was a very uh, kind of aha moment for me early in the pandemic, and and I think you know other people had similar uh, aha moments during the pandemic, but very early on when there weren't enough masks, right? And it was basically think they're all made in China, like like I think there was like one company that had been in the mask manufacturing. Uh, business, but they had gone under, or maybe they'd stopped making masks, whatever. But kind of like you have a sense, you're like, wow, <laughs> you should keep a few companies going in this country that can make masks, right? We shouldn't be this vulnerable. Um, and, you know, obviously that wasn't a case where it wasn't like uh, China was like holding out on us. They were sending tons of masks, but we didn't, we couldn't do anything about it ourselves. Um, and then you have the most the most basic things, the basic thing of you know the kind of and this is a, this is a controversial issue um, in the economics field. Basically, are manufacturing jobs better jobs? I think most of us still kind of intuitively think that a vibrant middle class is based on manufacturing jobs, like 
you know, certain people can be super high paid lawyers, kind of a professional slash service industry. Uh, you have a lot of people in various kinds of service industries. You have people working at Starbucks. You have people delivering things for Amazon. But that's somewhere, you know, but someone has to be making stuff and hopefully making stuff that will be exported abroad for, you know, to, you don't have a trade deficit and all this kind of stuff. This is actually, or at least has been in the economics field, a lot of, a lot of economists will, will say, well, you know, you, you think that's true, but it's not actually true. Um, and we'll leave that to the economists. I think intuitively, um, it sounds right to a lot of us. Someone's got to be making something. You can have a whole army of people who, who deliver our Amazon products around and you have people who make uh, lattes for us when we're sitting there using our iPad at, at the Starbucks or at the, or at the kind of you know, local coffee place, but someone's got to be making the stuff. So we got into talking about this and, um, and it wasn't, uh, not even sure this was really, you know, this wasn't like the point of the conversation. It was just what we happened onto. And, um, what came up in that in that in that conversation or what or what I brought up is that I think if you say to oh and one 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 other thing that I, that I brought up was that you know I think I some of you know I'm very into woodworking I'm very into hand tool woodworking and hand tool woodworking is sort of a niche of the larger you know it's it's not using circular saws and on all these kind of things it's hand tools it's non you know it's it's non uh non-power tools. Uh, but in that, so, so in that world, um, you, that is sort of a different, if you, if you, if you, uh, operate in that world and where you buy, buy tools from and stuff like this, it's a kind of a, it's a different cultural space than I inhabit as a publisher of a, you know, progressive leaning, uh, news organization. And in that world, you buy tools, they make sure, you know, this tool is made in America. Or this thing, this little object, or you know, whatever, made in America, made in America, made in America. And um, I think too many people who exist in the, you know, urban, progressive, blue state kind of thing, you know, made in a, you know, kind of saying made in America as a big part of the branding can seem a little, I don't know, a little off key, a little odd, a little Trumpy, something like that. Um, and if you, but if we go back to what, what we were just talking about before, about basically, you know, bringing supply chains home, bringing manufacturing back to the United States, how you do that, so on and so forth. Just before the episode, I was talking to uh, Kate and our producer, Jackie, and I said that, you know, I think uh, if you say we should do this, you know, we should sort of bring, in, you know, manufacturing jobs back to the United States, you know, kind of bring these bring these supply chains back to the United States. I think most people, uh, you know, kind of blue state people, for lack of a better word, would say, uh, yeah, sounds great. You know, makes sense. Uh, everybody wants good job and blah. Okay. Um, but, and, and um, if you walk people through the economic arguments and the national security arguments and so on and so forth, again, people say, oh, yeah, you know, kind of makes sense. We should, you know, we should bring some of these things back to the United States, blah, 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 blah. But that, that conversation, that argument is something that has very little political, cultural traction in the blue state cultural political world. Let's put it that way. You know, if I say, if, if, uh, if I'm talking and, and uh, I don't know, I, I think, um, uh, let, let's say uh, both of my colleagues on the show are probably in their late 20s. Okay. So, just gives you a generational, generational sense of who we're talking about. Um, if I say, you know, what do you think about the climate? You know, fix it, don't fix it. <laughs> you know, that's something that, that with younger blue state people, like there's a, there's a clear answer to that. Like, holy crap, like the whole, our whole future is on the line. We need to do everything possible to save the climate. Um, if you talk about unions, you know, it's, a, there's been a big change in the last decade, uh, where unions 
There aren't just abstract arguments for unions that people, when people see like, you know, another Amazon warehouse is organizing, people are like rooting, like, all right, let hope they can do it. You know, same with Star- Starbucks organizing and so forth. Just, I think most people know this, you know, TPM staff is, 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 is unionized. Um, that's uh, changed a lot. Those things have, uh, you know, reproductive rights. Important, not important. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna get a pretty clear answer to that question. So these things have these things have all sorts of cultural political energy behind them in our contemporary politics. Again, speaking broadly about people who um, are either identify as Democrats or people with generally center left, you know the, the, those kind of people. But when you talk about what about bringing supply chains home, what do you think? <laughs> Again, people say what? Like, well, you know, I, I, we're, 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 we're talking about, uh, you know, anti-racism and Dobbs and uh, climate. And you're talking about, you know, bringing supply chain, like, like, oh, like, uh, if you want to do that, cool. But like, okay, like, it, people just, it's just not kind of on the radar. And so what I was talking about with this, with this uh, member of Congress was, um, you know, I agree, we should do those things. But you're not going to be able to do it if there is not, if it is not um, cast into a a narrative, a storyline in which it has that kind of cultural and political traction. You know, one one of the things this member of Congress said was, you know, kind of like when he goes and speaks to a group of Democrats or, you know, you go and you go to an indivisible conference and you're speaking, you know, you're going to go up, you're going to hit, you're going to talk about Dobbs, you're going to talk about the climate. Um, you know, you may talk about this or that other thing or, you know, uh, Medicare for all. But in that kind of context, you're not going to talk about, yeah, we're bringing the supply chains home. And you get the sort of the, you know, 20 something saying, fuck yeah. Bring those supply chains home. It's been long enough they've been out of this country. Um, so I found that interesting because I do, I, I you know, I, I'm not an economist. I've never, I've never understood how these things work well enough um, to say whether it is actually true that everything can, can you know, can everything be made in China and, um, you know, the periphery of Southeast Asia, and we just buy all their stuff and somehow we, we remain rich. Like, does that, does that work? <laughs> if we don't make anything ourselves, if we just like sell coffee to each other and, and, and write each other's legal contracts. Um, so, uh, I think I, it is important. And, and this is clearly what my, you know, kind of the person I was chatting with, uh, said is that this is also a way you kind of get traction with people who don't who aren't interested in democrats some trump voters uh a lot of you know one of the one of the um one of the vulnerabilities now for democrats is young african-american and latino men like that that is a group that 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 you know we kind of think of as those being part of you know kind of a democratic coalition but not as much recently and so you start talking about you know manufacturing jobs jobs you can build a middle class life on so so on and stuff like this um so i found that very interesting and it got me thinking about how a politics is not just about it's certainly not just about who are your friends and who are your enemies you know who are you trying to own who are you trying to uh, whatever it's also not just about policies. It's about, again, cultural and political traction and what really kind of engages people, what they think is important at that level. So uh, let me remind you that the uh, Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. We are, we ha- we, we are, we are all supplied with uh, our Grady's Cold Brew. I actually have a, a cup right here. If you use the promo code TPM, at Grady'sColdBrew.com, you can get 25% off on your order. So remember, uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, Grady'sColdBrew.com, you get 25% off your order with the offer code TPM. So, uh, Kate Riga, co-host, um, what do you make of this? Is that am, am I right that sort of the youngs aren't marching about supply chains? That's not the thing that really kind of gets them going? Right. I think, yes, but do you think, I mean, to what degree is this going to be a regional thing for people who live in places that have factories and stuff? You know, it's a little hard for me to kind of 
divorce in my head, you know, this is not a, a, uh, an issue that kind of lights me aflame. But I also, you know, no one in my family was in manufacturing. That's just not been part of my kind of East Coast Philadelphia experience. So I, I wonder how much that comes into play as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, everybody, you know, everybody comes to these things with, with different, um, you know, different life experiences. You know, if you're, if you're, um, if you're living in a city and you've got a nice professional job, uh, and you know, kind of, I'm, I'm all set. I, I, I don't need to make solar tiles. You know, my law firm job is treating me just fine. Um, I think the, you know, the critique of that, and I think this is a very loaded sort of storyline, but there's something to it. The critique of that is, well, you know, that's why you end up with with the the exurbs and the rural hinterland, hinterlands giving you Trump because they don't have the high paying law job in the city. And they are in a part of the country where, uh, you know, there's no more manufacturing jobs and uh, there's a lot of opioids and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think we know that that is not the entirety of the story. Um, a lot of Trumpism is about cultural revanchism. Um, we know all this, but, but, but the... Um, the jobs and economic element of it is all you know is a is a part of it and i think you know often we get um there's been a lot of interesting sociology and economic analysis of these things that you know it is often the case that the backbone of trumpism is not people who are actually out of work it's certainly not the people at the bottom of the economic scale, the people who are most um, who are most economically deprived. It's often people who are doing okay or sometimes doing well, but they're from parts of the country that are clearly falling behind. They're not where the action is. In, in contemporary America, the economic and cultural action is in the is in the vibrant cities. And the suburbs of those cities. Um, in any case, very complicated thing, and um, it's a complicated set of questions. I mean, I think that just at a at a at a basic level, um, a country a country should have some control over the kind of the core building blocks of its economic vitality. It's you know one of the things we've be, we've been we've been dealing with. Um, sort of during the pandemic is that, um, you know, some huge, 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 huge amount of the semiconductors in the world are produced in Taiwan and, 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 and China. And there could be a war there, right? And if there, and if, if China took over Taiwan, suddenly like China, like owns all the semiconductor manufacturing or, you know, the vast enough, um, or there's major disruptions. So I, I kind of, you know, the, 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 the national security, national independence argument, um, has a lot of traction, uh, with me. I think the, the economic part does as well. I mean, one of the things that came up in this conversation I had with this, with this guy was, was, you know, if you, if you, you can get people's attention, if you talk about, Hey, you know, new battery technology. We're going to open a factory for making batteries, since obviously batteries is a huge part of the climate equation, or making solar panels. Um, but there's also, you know, making paper, making styrofoam, making, I don't know, chairs, right? I mean, there, there's there's also the non-sexy stuff that is a lot of what we um, what we rely on uh, day in and 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 day out, and uh, to this person's point, if you have a, you know, a town, you know, kind of post-industrial town with like thirty or forty thousand people, you're not going to be able to put like a chip foundry there. It just requires too much ancillary stuff. So, in any case, uh, I don't want to go too far in on that, but I, I. I it got me thinking a lot about, um, you know, the basic questions that this that this country uh, faces in 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 the coming years, and uh, if we are going into a post globalized world, which which 
I think clearly we are. I mean, everybody seems to, even the people who don't like it now recognize it. You know, that idea that everything is going to, everything is going to migrate to where it can be done, you know, can be done most efficiently, i.e. with the cheapest labor and, and, uh, least labor regulation that that's, that's, that's just, uh, past. And it was, it was becoming past already, but, um, but the pandemic really, I think it was the pandemic that really kind of ended the conversation made it no longer really a debate, just kind of a given that that's all we're moving past that. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, US-China rivalry and stuff like that. So anyway, what else do we got? There were a couple of, you were going to bring us an update on on the stuff going on with whether uh, everybody is going to lose their right to um, not have their Medicaid spent on a new mm-hmm. stadium for Brett Favre. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, just a little primer on the case. This is out of Indiana. It's scheduled for oral argument in November. Uh, The central question has become, can beneficiaries of major programs like Medicaid sue under Section 1983, this federal statute that lets these beneficiaries sue in federal court when states are, you know, neglecting their care or not fulfilling the kind of uh, mandated guidelines that come with the federal money to run these programs. And as I told you last week, um, There's been this really concerted activist effort on the ground to get the municipally owned hospital corporation to drop its petition to the court, um, to withdraw before it gets to oral arguments and just kind of shut down the potential catastrophe that could be wreaked by the conservative majority if they get their hands on this case. Um, And for a long time, that effort was just really met with a brick wall. You know, the attempts to kind of influence the board of this hospital corporation itself, you know, crickets, couldn't even get a response. And then the activists were focusing on the Indianapolis City Council uh, to kind of apply their sway and their pressure to the board. They appoint a couple of the members. Um, You know, it's kind of like the Democratic stronghold in the state. It's a symbiotic relationship. So for a while, not a lot of traction. And then all of a sudden, now we're seeing huge cracks in the facade. Um, Late last week, I watched a meeting where a bunch of council members kind of lobbed questions at the hospital corporation CEO about the lawsuit, um, expressing their unease. You know, I've been doing a lot of reporting, and there are kind of big seismic dynamic shifts underway that will... uh, come public, you know, in a few days from the council, which is just a big part of the dynamic, right? Like if the council kind of comes out against this petition, it just makes it much harder for the hospital corp to continue. And the mayor's a player here too, who has been kind of resistant to uh, playing along with the council on this question. So he may end up being kind of a lingering problem. But I would say two weeks ago, it seemed like, you know, the activists are doing their best, but pretty much all the stakeholders involved are being kind of like, nah, nah, not my, not my problem, not my circus, not my monkeys, you know. And in the past week and a half, that momentum has really changed direction. Now, do you do you think so? As we understand the basic thing, the basic issue. Now, are they the plaintiff or the defendant? I guess they must be the plaintiff because only the plaintiff can can bow out, I guess, or no? They're, guess they're the can. defendant. Yeah. They are the Originally, defendant. Okay. the family of the nursing home inhabitant brought the suit, lost at the lower court, won in, on appeal, and then the hospital corp appealed to the Supreme Court. Got it. Okay. And so the idea here is uh, the defendant just says, oh, after all, you know, I just, I'm happy with the lower court thing and we're good. Nothing to decide here. But the que- but my question is, how confident are the people pushing this that the Supreme Court won't say, Okay, that's cool, but it's pretty important still, so we're still going to decide it. Is is that seem right. like a real possibility? Well, the thing is the court couldn't use this as a vehicle. If they if the parties withdraw, you know, I kind of ran this by an expert in the federal judiciary because we have other cases where it's like we've seen one administration wants to take up a case that an old administration didn't want to enforce and things like that. Right. And he said, this is not the kind of case where that works. You know, this is kind of uh, a garden variety, like Medicaid case. It's not an interstate official dispute or something like that. So if if there's a, you know, some kind of settlement between the parties or if both parties sign on to it being withdrawn, you know, that's kind of, that's it. Um, now there's another case percolating um, at the 
appellate court level that actually is about primarily is about abortion and Planned Parenthood. Um, and South Carolina doesn't want to let Planned Parenthood be a provider in the Medicaid scheme because of the abortion stuff. And there, this question is also being raised. I mean, it's this pattern we keep seeing over and over again, that where there's a question that the kind of conservative legal world is interested in getting before the court and kind of feels the time is ripe, they will just stick that into every kind of tangentially related litigation, knowing that this court is not going to be that concerned with, you know, how germane that question is to the case at hand. Right, right. Basically, that could provide another vehicle if this case falls apart and the court is kind of like hell-bent on shredding these social uh, safety net programs one way or another. Well, at least it could, but it could give like a year. Exactly. A year or two reprieve and who knows what can happen um, in a a year or two. Exactly. And I also think this is a this is not uh, overturning Roe, right? I mean, I think even if a lot of these justices have expressed hostility to these lawsuits and, and clearly would be ready to shred them, I do think it's not quite the ideological bomb that, you know, right. abortion is or kind of the other justices' hobby horses. So there is always a chance that if this case falls apart, is this other case something they would take up? Like, yeah, maybe, sure. But I, I don't know that it's kind of lighting their hair on fire the way right, some other right, priorities right. are. Well, it's, it's certainly not like, you know, um, uh, both ideological sides, you know, try to come up with t- uh, test cases. You know, in theory, the way the courts are supposed to work is, you know, the political process churns its way forward. And if there is something that that cannot be resolved and needs to be resolved, then the court comes in if it, you know, it, if it can't, it's down at the trial court, then at the appellate court, if it keeps, you know, still blah, 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 court finally steps in. And we have seen, you know, there was a, there, there are a couple times over the last decade, or I think maybe more like last six or seven years where Justice Alito would, you know, be talking about one case, one decision, and then just kind of say like, hey, anybody's got a case on this <laughs> other thing, please send it. Because I'm eager to to do this other thing that has not come before me at all, but I'm I'm ready. So just just letting everybody know, please, you know, come up with something, and I will immediately bring it to the court. So we, we you know you know we know about the 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 courts um, the courts activism, and there was that thing. I mean, I guess I guess the argument from the legal expert you're referring to would be that that EPA issue was was something very basic about. Uh, the interplay between the two branches of government. So, and, and in that case, they kind of, you know, they went beyond what they're normally supposed to do, which is, you know, when they're, when something happens and when you have an aggrieved uh, complainant, then you've got to, you know, and this has to do with, you know, carbon regulation, EPA, blah, 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 blah. Um, at the point at which it happens, then you review it. And the court said, eh, it hasn't happened yet, but, you know, why... Why kick the can down the road? Why you know? Why not do today? Why why do tomorrow what you can do today? And they just went ahead. But I guess it is a little you know. I guess there's an argument that um, basic questions about the interplay between uh, the the executive branch and 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 Congress, you know, those those are things that need to be addressed, resolved. So you know, maybe right. maybe it's a little different. And on its face here, I mean, this as this started out, it was the family of a nursing home inhabitant suing the nursing home for mistreatment. You know, that's kind of just one of a, a basic framework. And even though it's kind of been used as a vehicle for this bigger question, it is supposed to be kind of fundamentally a, a small, you know, interpersonal case. So. Right. So it's just that, like you mistreated our our loved one, and and I wonder if I wonder if they, if that is the that is some of the resistance on the part of the hospital, and mm-hmm. you know, because as as you said, the larger issue here is: do states need to use Medicaid funding for what it's supposed to be used for? Or can they just sort of ignore the federal mandates and do what they want? And and that lawsuits are, you know, if if you are in a state and Medicaid is supposed to Medicaid money is supposed to be used in part to subsidize nursing homes, and say the state decides, you know, no, we're not going to do that. Then you then you know your loved one needs to be in a nursing home. You sue 
to say, hey, you've got to follow the rules. And that's how these things get worked out. But as I guess what you're saying is this one's a little different. This is like you mistreated our particular person. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, from my reporting, the hospital corporation people, what they've kind of been saying is a mix of like, this isn't that big a deal. The activists are being hysterical. This is just to shield us from frivolous lawsuits. Um, This like kind of completely baseless confidence that the Supreme Court will not deal with this bigger question and we'll just kind of deal on, like we're saying, this interpersonal case of, you know, one nursing home inhabitant. Um, And then a mix of kind of misinformation of like, well, you know, if we bow out of the case, someone else could take it, which is just really seems not to be the case in this kind of a dispute. So it's just, it's this odd mix where it's very hard to discern what's ignorance, what's malice. It's kind of a complicated, wonky question at its core. But the political dynamics are clear. And we're kind of also supercharged by amicus briefs coming due last Friday. And one on the docket was from Nancy Pelosi and Sherrod Brown and Steny Hoyer and all of these kind of you know high wattage Democrats who are mostly heading up the committees that kind of deal with this kind of stuff that deal with, you know, aging and and care and Medicaid and, and that kind of mix of stuff, all basically saying in their brief, the federal government just lacks the resources to play police with these kind of programs with every single, you know, every single apparatus that's playing into Medicaid and SNAP and all this stuff. We can't do it. And that's what these lawsuits are for, right? They're to kind of settle individual mistreatment because all the federal government can really do is like big systemic stuff. They just can't deal with these person by person cases. So, you know, that was their argument. And they had kind of a long biting section saying, you know, Congress says what it means, which is just kind of Especially pointed because this court, basically every time they've been overturning a right they don't like, have said, well, Congress wasn't clear enough. We're not sure what Congress was trying to say. So let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater. And in this one, you know, the members were just very, you know, this is what we wrote into the law. This is what we meant to do. We wanted these lawsuits to exist. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, you know. This isn't a question where like, what did Thomas Jefferson, I, I, I chose, <laughs> right. I chose the, route, the wrong founder since obviously Jefferson wasn't at the Constitutional Convention. But, you know, what did James Madison right. really think? Well, that's a tough one. But, but you know, what did Nancy Pelosi think? Well, you know, it's sort of like that, that, that famous uh, scene in Annie Hall where, where, where uh, the Woody Allen character brings over Marshall McLuhan. Right. Well, let's settle this right now. <laughs> right. The work of Marshall McLuhan. So, uh, y- yeah, and, and it really, I mean. This just goes to the um, renegade and corrupt nature of of the much of the federal judiciary now that, you know, there are some cases where judges have to say it is simply not clear what this text means. Like it's not clear enough and and it is Congress. eh, It is Congress's responsibility to be basically clear. Right. We can't you can't write something vague and expect us to read your minds. Well, in a lot of these cases, you know, where the, where the law says the EPA will decide what's pollution and then we'll try to clean it up. EPA will decide. Period. And and then you got the court come in and say like, "Well, they can't have mean, meant that that such and such." Well, obviously they did. And maybe you think that wasn't a good idea, but that clearly is what they did. Um, you know, it's it is a uh, it's a very different uh, well it's a different program but I wanted to at least talk briefly and I'm sure some people have seen a little of this this scandal down in Mississippi with the TANF spending so I can't remember the actual words that TANF uh, uh, stands for but basically TANF is the successor to uh, you know welfare it's what welfare reform in the 90s created so you had a you know, the welfare system that was, you know, kind of a statutory framework of, of uh, what is it, you know, women, what, was it women, dependent children, AF, AF, AFTC? I mean, I, I should remember this stuff. In any case, um, what happened in the 90s, they basically turned it into a system of block grants. You send the money to the states and with the general uh, mandate of, you know, find stuff to help the poors. 
basically, right? And um, and this appealed to a lot of the 90s, you know, kind of decentralized, not one size fits all, you know, clear out the regulation and bureaucracy. Um, but what has happened is in some ways it becomes like a piggy bank of just like, hey, we got a budget shortfall. Oh, well, we got this TANF money. That'll, that'll, that'll work. Or, uh, you know, poor people like going to the movies. Let's build a movie theater. Right? I mean, just, just, just things that are pretty shady. But in Mississippi, you've probably seen the part of this that is about Brett Favre. And so, at his alma mater, where his daughter is a volleyball player, he got the state through the, you know, he's from Mississippi, so he knows everybody, knows the governor. Um, they wanted to build like a volleyball stadium at the alma mater. And so they got a bunch of welfare money, TANF money to build it, like millions of dollars. And I think like Favre himself got a million dollars. Just, I don't even know why. Like just as, I don't know, because he was the, you know, he's like the executive producer of the of the volleyball stadium or whatever. And so th- that has been a big thing. Like kind of like, you may have different ideas about what this money for impoverished primarily for impoverished women and children is for. It is definitely not to build a volleyball stadium at your alma mater. It is 100%. There's just no way. No way. And it's especially not to give a million dollars personally to Brett Favre, who's probably made $100 million in his career, not mentioning uh, you know endorsements and stuff like that. But then what has come out, what has increasingly come out over the last few weeks is that it's really clear the governor was helping do this, the then governor, this guy Bryant. Um, And there's a bunch of other examples of this. Some professional wrestlers also had some stuff they wanted to do. So it was just truly just just like a slush fund. You know, you're friends of the governor, you're friends of this guy, you know, you were you kicked ass in that one WWE tournament, you know. It's going to come up with some wrestling name, but I, I, I thought better of it, thankfully. And there was some statistic I saw, like in the 1990s, there were something like 30,000 people in uh, Mississippi on AFDC, you know, on welfare. And now there's like 10. So like all that money has just been handed out to friends of people in the political class or like, you know, kind of uh, famous ballplayers. And... Um, these are certainly not the identical things, but, you know, Medicaid money should go to Medicaid. It should go to the things that, 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 that the federal government says it should go for, because that's where the money comes from. Um, and certainly, TANF money shouldn't go for like volleyball stadiums. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, it, it, it's, a, it's a shocking story because it, it's, you know, it, it's, we can kind of say like, all right, obviously it's not for that. But there were people this money's supposed to go to. Mississippi's the poorest state in the country. It, it is a deeply impoverished state with a lot of people really living on, you know, the edge of deep privation. And, you know, this is kind of one of the few programs that is supposed to address stuff like that. And they're making like volleyball stadium. It's, 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 and, and it, clearly some of it is criminal. And it's sort of a question now whether they're gonna, a few people have already either been charged or had to plead out. Um, but it's, it's one of the, it's, it's, it's one of these, it's one of these situations where clearly here it got totally out of hand and people clearly broke the law. And we'll find out if like Favre is going to be one of those people. But it's also a case where it was clearly kind of standard operating procedure that you just, you know, it's just a pot of money. You can do whatever you want with. Right. Yeah. So let's uh, let's take a turn to perhaps a more gleeful space. Well, perhaps a bit spiteful, perhaps a bit gleeful. So we're going to do a check in on our two absolute favorite lawmakers in all of the Congress, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, who both have been up to some hijinks these past week or two. So we'll start with Cinema, who gave some remarks at, I believe, the McConnell Center, named for our third favorite lawmaker in Congress, um, where 
she talked about her stance on the filibuster and said that not only, you know, does she maintain her support for the 60 vote threshold on nearly all legislation that we have now, but she actually thinks that we should reinstate the filibuster for things that it's been nuked away from. So, you know, like Supreme Court judges, justices, and judicial and executive branch appointments. Because, you know, the 60 vote threshold just kind of keeps everyone safer. So, Josh, I I assume that you agree wholeheartedly with that. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's it's so, I mean, I guess she was like given an award or something. Usually that's how these work. You get, you you know, when you give a little talk like this, you get the, you know, the McConnell (laughs) award of, of, of excellence or something like that. And it, it's 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 very hard to figure what motivates Kirsten Cinema at, at at this point in the game. Um, it's one thing to support the legislative filibuster. Um, I you know in some ways it would have at least. I'm kind of curious what would happen at this point if um, if you did have the filibuster for Supreme Court appointments, you wouldn't have had Amy Coney Barrett. You know, you, but I, I suspect in a lot of cases, you just have nobody. The, 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 the seats, the seats would not, would not, um, would not be filled. You know, what people don't remember is back, um, I can't, I think it was with both, with both Alito and Roberts, there was a filibuster then, right? And, but Republicans made it very clear at the very beginning, you filibuster, we're getting rid of the filibuster. That's the deal. So really, there was no filibuster. Because they made clear, if you use it, we're getting rid of it. And um, uh, and that's, you know, the Senate cannot really constrain itself. In, like literally can't constrain itself. Um, but so it's one thing you support the filibuster. You, you go to the McConnell Center to sing a song to the filibuster, a love song to the filibuster. Clearly, you are getting some high from just, I don't even know what to call it, like spitting in the face of, of, of your voters. There, there's just no other way to put it. And, um, you know, she's not up this cycle, but she's up in 2024. And that's not that far away. So like, she's not pivoting. I, it's, it's, it's really like, what is she, I, I don't, the best I can think is, is I still think she has people in her ear who are telling her, man, you're going to be like Lieberman. You're going to kind of, you know, win it with independent voters and, and who cares what those crazy people on Twitter say, you've got this. I, the whole thing is just sort of, just sort of, um, just sort of inexplicable. She's weird. Let me just like sprinkle in some quotes from this event. So McConnell actually introduced her himself and said, she is today what we have too few of in the Democratic Party, a genuine moderate and a (laughs) deal maker. Okay. And then she says, despite our apparent differences, Senator McConnell and I have forged a friendship, one that is rooted in our commonalities, including our pragmatic approach to legislating, our respect for the Senate as an institution. Okay. And then later on when she's talking about the... Uh, restoring the filibuster for the areas where it doesn't govern anymore. (laughs) She said, she acknowledges it would make us harder. It would make it harder for us to confirm judges. And then she moves on and says, frustration with the filibuster represents solely the short-term angst of not getting what you want. And those of you who are parents in the room know that the best thing you can do for your child is not to give them everything they want. Like just the disdain like you say, for her voters, you know, it's not like people are asking for legislation of like, I don't know, give me free money. You know, the legislation that people are the most mad at her about is voting rights and abortion rights and gun regulation. And she's comparing it to a child throwing a tantrum for not getting what it wants. I mean, I just, I, I find there's, her there's, baffling in and every terrible. single way. Yeah. In this just rudderless, like, you know, amoral way of existing that I just, I don't understand and which seems a little bit divorced from how she came up in politics. Well, it's extremely divorced from how she came up in politics. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, uh, beefs against her. Um, There's so many layers to that comment because democracy is you vote 
and majorities win and they do things. That's that's democracy. We're not saying we're going to, uh, you know, confiscate the houses of people we don't like. You know, <laughs> that's that's just democracy. But it's all but and and this is something where kind of goes back to what I was talking about in this conversation I mentioned earlier. Some of this is Senate brain that goes beyond Kirsten Cinema, although she is in a totally different category by herself. But this idea, are like, are you the parent? Like, like I, the idea is, you know, you we're the voters, we are the children, and you, the senator, you are the parent. Like, really? <laughs> no, that 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 is that is what universe are you are you are you living in? We elect you to represent us. There are different theories of representation. One is that, you know, we elected you, we elected you to do what you think is best, not necessarily to to do what your constituents want in the moment. That's, you know, that's reasonable to to disagree over. But this idea, again, the parent, the parent metaphor, and I mean like, I'm a parent. I get it. I consider myself a dictator with my co-dictator spouse, right? I I get but but Senators are not parents and voters are not children. I mean, it's, it, it is a deeply offensive, it boggles the mind, frankly, it bog and, 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 but what truly boggles the mind is that like people have all these series like, oh, she's, you know, she's going to be a lobbyist. She's going to cash in and all this kind of stuff. There is no self-interest angle here. She may think there is, but like, she's not helping herself here. She's just, she's just like committed to being a complete asshole. And plenty of politicians are assholes. They don't announce they're assholes, right? Because that doesn't work politically. Um, and, and just the other point, again, with everybody who talks about, oh, she's, you know, her high money people are just can't wait to sign her up for a $10 million a year lobbying gig. That's not how it works. You hire the people you hire as lobbyists, you want two things. You want a lot of seniority in the legislative chamber, you've been around for a long time, three things. You want people to like you because the friendships are the currency and you need to be a people person, which goes with the friendships, right? You want to hire, you know, Dick Durbin. He knows everybody. Dick's going to call up, hey, can you help me? Like, oh, Dick, I'll do any, you know, always want to do you a good turn. No one likes her. No one likes her. And she is not a people person. She is notoriously not a people person. So like, no one wants that. No, that's just not useful to anybody in the lobbying business. It's not just a way to give away money. It's a way to to hire people who can get things for you. And everybody hates her. I know. It's so funny. That's been my thought too. When people keep saying the lobbyist thing is just like person, you know, personality and kind of amenability, I think is a big part of the job. So I'm not sure that alienating everyone, but Mitch McConnell is kind of your way to a, you know, a productive lobbying ship. And then also, you know, from the self interested standpoint, we saw a poll quite recently that was um, on cinema's approval numbers, and they're horrible. I mean, they're better with Republicans than other Democrats are, sure, but that's not going to win her an election. You might honestly see the most likely off ramp for her is going to be like some stupid CNN commentating gig because they love to hire like the worst possible people. So that seems, you know, likely to me. But yeah, it's just it's just, it's like her only aim here is to take the power that she has and to just infuriate the people who are most responsible for getting her elected. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, that poll you're referring to was actually a relatively good poll for her. She usually polls worse, but I mean, if you listen to her, sort of storyline and the storyline of the nine people in the country who like her. It, it's that, well, yeah, she's, you know, she's she hasn't kowtowed to the Democrats. She's not, she's not a kind of a standard partisan politician, but independents love her. Actually, they don't. They they dislike her at least as much as Democrats. No one likes her. No one likes her. And 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 really, why would anybody like her? 
uh, and I and in this case, I am not speaking in a personal terms, although I think there's probably some argument for personal terms too. But what can but in a political sense, what constituency does she have? I mean, it's it would be one thing if um she were ideologically just in a different place. And she's from a certain kind of state where that works, right? But it's not even really that. She just wants to make nothing happen. You know, you're Republican, you might get some sort of situational glee out of that, but no one no one likes that. No one actually likes that. They kind of they they Republicans are entertained by it. But again, what her um what it you know it's 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 just sort of inscrutable and I, but i will say this i think things have gotten to the point where you know there's a lot of question of like you know is she going to face a primary challenge is that you know kind of blah 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 i don't think that's the question anymore she is not going to be reelected in 2025 it's impossible it is just impossible there's no way so democrats need to be thinking of how do they approach this so that another Democrat has a shot at, at being elected? I mean, given there's, there's simply no way she could survive a primary in, unless, unless the challenger is like a child molester or, or like a serial killer. I mean, any, any semi-normal person will beat her. Um, but then the question is, you know, you want that semi-normal person to be someone who can actually win a general election. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough position for Democrats because the, the sort of the discussion up to this point has been, well, it's a very purple state. You really want to primary her, you know, then you weaken her, then you get a worse candidate. Those are good points, but she, she's not going to win. She's, there's, there is simply in a state like Arizona, you need a hundred percent of Democrats completely charged to vote for a Democratic candidate, and there is simply no way that will happen for her. Yeah. So you got to come up with an alternative. It's not really a choice at this point. Well, let's move to the person always, you know, named in the same breath as her, which is Joe Manchin, who, you know, had to had to swallow some of his own medicine this week over this permitting reform bill, which our listeners will remember was part of the deal that he came to with Schumer on the Inflation Reduction Act. He wanted this permitting reform stuff, which, uh, you know, shortens the window of environmental reviews and kind of, you know, the public Q&A portion. And which I think kind of really critically would have guaranteed permit approvals for the Mountain Valley Pipeline, a natural gas pipeline running through West Virginia and Virginia, which has been blocked by the courts due to its environmental impacts. So this would like circumvent the court order and let the project go ahead anyway, which I really do think is kind of like a thorny part of this, you know, that hasn't gotten a ton of airtime. But so this permitting reform thing couldn't go through reconciliation with the IRA. So the deal was, I will give you my votes on IRA now, and then you will help me with permitting reform down the road, which is funny because we have so many echoes here of the initial kind of BBB bipartisan yeah. infrastructure deal debacle. So now, you know, IRA is passed, it is law, time to do permitting reform. Schumer attached it to the continuing resolution, which is just, you know, your, your normal spending bill that Congress fights over every year that you need to pass to avert a shutdown. You know, the clear leverage being if you don't pass this this vehicle, the government will shut down. So there's your, uh, you know, there's your leverage. But yesterday, Manchin had to ask Schumer to take the permitting reform bill, you know, out of the continuing resolution due to the opposition by, you know, the kind of unlikely bedfellows of Republicans and progressive Democrats, both of whom, you know, had different reasons for opposing it. The progressive Democrats you really didn't like the environmental impacts of this permitting reform. And also some in particular were troubled by this kind of workaround for Manchin's pet pipeline in West Virginia. And then Republicans 
some kind of said they wanted, you know, even more lenient permitting reform, like to kind of screw the environment even more. But a lot of them just seem to oppose this because they're mad at Manchin for the Inflation Reduction Act, which kind of cracks me up because like Republicans could not have kind of crafted a better Democratic senator for their own purposes than they have in the form of Joe Manchin. But the fact that he kind of like helped out the home team on this one issue, which is so many trillions of dollars smaller than what Democrats wanted to do is enough for them to be like, oh, well, screw you then. You know, I thought we were friends. And now you are going to work with the Democrats? Like, no permitting for you. Sorry. Tough time. Now, here, here's my question. Is our, is, is, and this, this could, this could uh, have an impact in various ways in the future, depending on how things shake out. Is our perception that Manchin thought um, that Schumer did his part, like tried, but it was kind of beyond his control or that Schumer having made this promise sort of like, oh, oh no, no. your thing can't get voted for. I'm so sad. Yeah, no, my, at least in his statement, he was much more like, well, I guess we just have some senators who don't care about energy independence. Like that stinks. You know, I I actually think that Schumer seems to have played his cards pretty well here and at least acted as if like I'm I'm doing everything I can, man. Like I right. can't control all these senators. Well, I guess if yeah, I mean if there's how how many? Well, it's it's, it's sort of speaks. I mean, because because as we know, there were a lot. I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of progressives, and I don't mean progressive senators. I I mean progressives just in the country who, when they saw this deal, were sort of like, oh, you know. Why did why did Manchin have to get this payoff? He sucks. It's, you know, kind of giving to the environment with one hand, taking from another. And then once it passed, uh, a lot of those same people were like, fuck him. You know, remember when we relied on him to like, you know, to stick to his deal? Well, like, you know, kind of turnabout is fair play. And, um, uh, you know, that's not the worst argument. Turnabout kind of is fair play. But on the other hand, you're going to want this isn't the last time you're going to need something from Joe Manchin. So at least in my mind, I was like, you know, that's, that's the deal. It was a huge victory. Don't, don't mess it up. It's, it's a, it's a relative, it's galling, but the actual thing is pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. Right. And I mean, I think in this way too, it's like Schumer kind of had the ideal situation, right? Because you've got someone like Bernie Sanders, going on the Senate floor every day and talking about how this is like a terrible deal for the environment. And, you know, I think even those of us who have great kind of respect for Schumer as a wrangler of difficult personalities. I mean, is there anyone who is like, well, Schumer, you could have gotten Bernie into line if you worked a little harder. Like, this is the guy who's had essentially the same policy positions for like a million years. He's not going to vote for (laughs) this like fossil fuel giveaway. So you kind of had those actors on the Democratic side. And then you had spiteful Republicans who, what is Schumer going to do about them? You know, it does kind of position him in this good place to be like, I tried. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. I think for um, for the purposes of intra-democratic harmony, you want Manchin to feel like Schumer didn't leave him hanging. Maybe he couldn't get it done, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Now, just so I understand this, what votes were necessary here? Is this a, a, a 60 vote thing? Yeah. So they, so, so basically, and then how many Democrats were refusing to vote for it? It's hard to tell, but ballpark. Yeah. I mean, half a dozen, least, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, you even had the likes of kind of like Tim Kaine not wanting to vote for it because I think the, even aside from the kind of the progressive woes, then the specific West Virginia deal freaked people out. I mean, that felt a little bit like kind of well, who needs the courts? I'm, I'm going to do what I want anyway. So I right. think that piece also made it even more of a poison pill than it would have been initially. So the, now you're talking like a lot of Republicans you need to come on board. Right. So so the, the, the sort of the standard 10 that you need now, suddenly you need like 15 or 20. And right. it's just not. Yeah. And obviously, um, as you said, I mean, Republicans feel like he betrayed them. I mean, in what universe that makes any sense, but that's the universe we live in. I know. It's laughable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's uh, finish out this kind of bouillabaisse of an episode with some recent shifts in polls that uh, you wrote about recently, Josh, and that seem to indicate that maybe some 
of the kind of uh, summer enthusiasm for Democrats maybe tempered somewhat. Yeah, it's it's very hard to say. And, um, you know, many of us are political obsessives and you're looking at the polls and, and, you know, trying to see the trend and it's you're not clear, you know, what's noise and what's trend. I don't think there's been anything dramatic. I think I think there's two things going on. There's been some wobble, a little wobbliness in the in the congressional generic ballot. Some of that was caused by uh, an ABC Washington Post poll came out which was very good for Republicans, kind of off trend. Uh, There were a couple others that seemed to show things tightening a little. Um, One can speculate there's been... there's been some kind of iffy economic news over the last few weeks. Not not so much uh, bread and butter stuff, but like, you know, the, 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 the equities market moving into you know bear market territory and and as 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 Kate and Jackie and I were talking before the episode, even if you're not directly exposed to that, that just creates a feeling. You know, it's hard to it, it. I think even if you have no exposure to the stock market, if you see it going down each day, you're going to kind of absorb that and think, all right, maybe bad times are coming, something like that. But I think on on the on the um, on the generic ballot stuff. Just as likely, that's just noise and means nothing. We don't really know that that number is going to bounce around. What I think has happened is that a number of Senate races have tightened a bit. Again, not dramatically, and some chance of noise in there, but I think there's something a little more real there that those are tightening. And my best guess is that you know, in the spring and into the early summer, uh, Republicans were having all these money issues. They weren't raising enough money. Their committees were arguing um, with each other about who's going to have to support various problem child candidates. Um, In some cases, you didn't have a nominee chosen, all this kind of stuff. I think what's happened over the last month or so is that the Republicans have gotten their ducks in a row a bit, and they've gone on the airwaves and kind of evened that out a bit. And I think you see that showing up, you know, in 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 some of those races uh, tightening. So all of this, again, this is this is like political obsessive stuff. Um, we don't know if anything's happening. Kind of everything is. You know, I, I think everything remains up up for grabs. I will conclude on sort of one point, going back to this this conversation I keep referencing. As you might expect, I brought up my row and reform hobby horse in this conversation. And I said, like, you know, people up there are blowing it. This is the way you win both houses by making a firm pledge, you know, we are going to do this. Even the president now is kind of saying we're going to do this, even though we haven't actually heard from the senators whether they're going to do it. But you, you know my argument on this thing. And uh, this person hadn't even really heard of it. And I don't mean my little catchword. TPM is not the largest media organization in the country. Not everybody's going to uh, see what I've had to say. But the idea that you are going to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. We are going to overrule Dobbs. We are going to bring back abortion rights next January. And all you have to do is show up to vote. And we can do this. This is this isn't something no one is no one else but me has talked about. A lot of people have talked about it. It's obvious. And um it's just kind of telling that you've got uh, you know, a kind of an on the scene member of Congress and sort of like, oh, interesting. Interesting idea. I mean, it is late for that to be just an interesting idea. And um, you know, I told this person, like, if this would have happened six weeks ago. I think Democrats would be on the way to winning both chambers. And they still might, um, but it's just such a, it's such a missed opportunity. And it is largely on Senate Democrats for their mix of Senate think and myopia. Um, It's not even, it's not even, it's not even courage. It's not that they don't really believe in abortion rights. They do. They're just in this own little world of theirs where, I mean, Sorry for going on about this. I <laughs> I got this reader, right? Writes in sometimes. And this reader has been kind of writing in a lot recently about, about the Rowan reform stuff. Why isn't it happening? What's going on? And this person, who I think is pretty politically wired, said, you know, I've talked to, I've talked to all the big consultants 
and I've talked to the people at Planned Parenthood, and I've talked to a bunch of senators, and they're all like, you know, okay, whatever, you know, eh, or they don't respond or kind of, you know, they're just not there. And this person said, like, what is it that, that they see that, that, that I don't see, that you, Josh, don't see? And I said to this person, I said, this will sound very arrogant. And maybe it is, but in this case, I'm confident it's true. So I'll say it. They're wrong. It, and it is very unfortunate that a lot of the people who call the shots and make the big decisions in democratic politics have a basic misunderstanding about how messaging and contemporary electoral politics functions. And that may be why Democrats will lose both chambers this cycle. It's, again, perfectly reasonable to say like, oh, that's pretty, pretty confident in yourself there, Josh. In this case, I am. I've been doing this for more than 20 years. I, I, I have some instincts about how these things function. I'm not saying it would win everything, but I'm certain it would, it would put Democrats in a, in a significantly better position than they are now. So, with that moment of big-headedness, I guess we can we can conclude this episode. Um, remember, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and get 25% off with the promo code, uh, promo code, promo code, offer code, TPM. TPM is all it counts. That and you get your 25% off. All right. All right. See you next week. See ya. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 